0: Matthew 14, 22 through 36, um, if you're not turned there. Uh, last thing uh, is we're going to pray about this. Uh, <clears throat> I, so Michael Stone is back in the hospital. He's one of the men that teaches our adult um, discipleship hour class. Um, I saw him yesterday. He was doing great. We laughed and joked around. This morning, uh, he is not doing well, and uh, they are concerned at this point that his heart is just too weak and uh, that it just may stop. And so um, we're going to pray for him this morning. um, But let me first bring the word uh, to you, reading it to you. If you would please stand, and then we will pray. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter another familiar story. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And we sent the multitudes away, went up on the mountain by himself to pray Now an evening came, he was alone there. Finally, that's not in the text. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Because that's a completely rational suggestion. So the Lord said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. As many as touched it were made perfectly well. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, I would pray that, that Michael Stone would be made perfectly well. He might not want me to pray that. <laughs> like Rusty, he knows that there is value of him staying here, but so badly wants to be presence. and he doesn't want to remain here and not be able to be effective. So, Lord, I don't know exactly how to pray for him. I do know that you've appointed something very amazing for my brother, and um, so, Lord, I pray for his bride that you would just. Be with her, comfort her, Lord, and give her courage for whatever lies ahead. Uh, Not just courage and courage itself, but, Lord, faith in you because you will be faithful to walk with her. And um, so just bless her, I pray, and, um, and be with Michael, Lord. Just help him to enjoy sweet fellowship with you this and to have the right words to communicate to his wife to build her up in all of this. And Lord, we also um, pray for Teresa's family as uh, they continue to grieve her loss and as we uh, schedule and organize a time to just remember and celebrate just all that she was to to many of us. And Lord, also for our team that is in in Ecuador, Lord, that you would... um, Just continue to work through them as they build and as uh, buildings and as they build your kingdom. Just grant them grace and help the people locally there to respond to the gospel. And Lord, it's imperative this morning that from your word, uh, you teach us, you instruct us. And Lord, that as your intent in most of this story is to increase our faith, Lord, help us to have more faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Let's look at the first couple of verses here, 22 and 23. So immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Okay, we know we've we've had the feeding of the at least 5,000 men. For them to go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And we had sent the multitudes away, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. Now, uh, actually before this part of our story began, uh, as we had mentioned briefly last week, some of the men in the crowd that had witnessed Jesus perform this crazy miracle um, with the bread and the fish, they wanted to force Jesus to become king. They were going to coronate him right there on the beach. Okay? And, uh, but it wasn't for man to place Jesus on the throne of his earthly empire. That's the prerogative of his father alone. And we actually find that, um, that throughout the scriptures, but I think nowhere as dramatic as Psalm 2. If you haven't read Psalm 2 lately, I encourage you to read it again. I'm just going to quote a small part of it, where the Father says to Jesus, You are my Son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Psalm 2, 7 through. 8. Well, Jesus has asked for the nations, and he will return, he will ascend the throne of David, he will rule over the earth, and as he does, the scriptures say that he will he will fill it with righteousness. Could you imagine that kind of polity? Everybody will like to talk politics at that time because they'll rejoice in their king who uh, who rules in peace and righteousness. But the timing of that just as Jesus told the apostles, is all in his father's hands. As he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. So when the father tells Jesus to return, he will. Okay, And, uh, and at that time, the coronation will happen, but not until then. That is not for man. So at, in the context of our story, when Jesus became aware of their plans to make him king, I don't know how you make a sovereign king. Uh, that seems to be uh, his prerogative. He had his disciples get into the boat, and as he dismissed the crowd, then uh, he slipped into the hills unnoticed to pray. I think that uh, when you have upwards of 15,000 people around you, it's probably a little easier to just kind of uh, vanish. And so he took advantage of that, and he, he got away. What is important, I think, to note, as we spent some time last week, is that the privacy that Jesus had sought much earlier that day of course, had put on a hold as he taught, healed, and fed the people because what he had done throughout his ministry is he placed the people before himself. His desire to be alone, to pray, and to grieve his cousin was set aside. He managed eventually to find solace, solitude, but not before ministering to the people. So again, we see him putting himself second. How many of you guys are familiar with Pastor Gail Irwin? He's a man read maybe servant quarters or that reminds me of a story or the Jesus style, the servant style, the father style. If you want to read those, they're, they're great. If you've ever listened to Gail, that's an experience. Uh, he's an ending man. But he has uh, called Jesus the ever others-centered one. Jesus served others and he would take a little bit of time to get recharged and then he would serve others again. Scripture says that uh, after it was way after dark, After all the people's needs were met, he would stay up late, and he would be ministered to by his father, and then he would be up before the sun came up, before he was inundated again with crowds, because he was again uh, praying. And oftentimes the apostles would wake up late and go, where's Jesus? Well, he was out having fellowship with his dad. The needs of the people never ended, but this time in our story, it wasn't the people, it was the boys'. It says, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea tossed by the waves for the wind was contrary, that it was blowing in their face. So if the people didn't need ministry, the boys needed rescuing. So there they are, and, and I'll explain some of the timing of all this in a second, but they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's a boat that is full of, a ton of uh, 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 full of professional sailors and they can't get to the other side and it's been a minute. Anybody work out the time in reading ahead? It's been eight hours plus, straining at the oars. Most of us in this room could not strain at oars for eight hours, okay? But they've been out there. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Now, the Jews, they broke up their night watches in, into four parts. So you had six to nine, you had nine to 12, 12 to three, and then three to six. What watch is this? Oh, man, these boys set out at evening, which was around 7 p.m. Around, okay, sundown in Israel around the Passover, because we know it's about that time, is about 7 p.m. So Jesus last saw them before 7 p.m. rowing out into the sea, and then they've been rowing out there for at least eight hours and they got started when the sun was going down, and now it's just coming up. It comes up at about 6 a.m. just before Passover. So whatever time it was that Jesus got to them on the water, uh, it was enough. It was light enough for them to see him a little bit. Now, I, I don't know why he allowed them to do that. There's probably some object lesson in it. Um, I, I don't know for sure. But they got to strain at the oars for a very, very long time. And then things get worse. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now, that the disciples were troubled is actually a fairly mild translation of the Greek word, which can also mean terrified. Terrified, which explains why they were crying out in the boat. Okay? Now, 11 grown men screaming at the top of their lungs, that must have been something, and they were probably glad that they were still in the middle of the lake where they were their own witnesses. Amen. Just screaming. They describe what they saw as the Texas uh, ghost. The, the, from the Greek word we get phantom. Okay. The light wasn't quite right that early in the morning. But you know, even with perfect light, um, you need an, an explanation. You need a word to describe someone walking on the water in the middle of a lake that is being tossed by the wind. How do, you, how do you describe that? How do you explain such a strange thing? Now, I don't know that if you realize this or not, but everybody else has realized this about you. Everybody's mind, for some reason, is inherently superstitious. It is, okay? Especially when you are surprised and given no time to reason through things, okay? So when it's dark, when it's spooky, we get spooked, Amen? You're all lying, okay? But even then, there's no explanation other than the supernatural for what they were witnessing, okay? So the best they could come up with was a phantom. And that's really, truly, exactly what we would have all said as well under the same circumstances. And then, when people are afraid, uh, we know of a couple mechanisms that can take over. We generally talk about fight or flight, okay? So my son Samuel... Uh, he is instantly fight. So if you frighten him, you will get punched in the face if he can reach you. It's just it, he doesn't think about it; he just swings. Okay. Other people, their their initial instinct is to flee. Uh, in this case, it would have been to swim. Um, but if it's a specter, if it's a phantom, you know, there's just no fighting in it. So uh, fighting is. So now what? Well, I don't actually think there's only two responses to fear I think that there's actually four because I've seen all four okay there's fight there's flight there's freeze and there's pass out okay have you guys ever seen uh like video footage of people riding those carnival rides where they shoot up in the air and then they come back down people pass out in them all the time just completely out of fear so they scream and then they stop and then they 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 come back to and then they scream and then they stop I don't know why I enjoy watching that, but it's like, play that again. <laughs> yeah. So these guys, they, uh, they have the freeze mechanism. Uh, yeah. So 11 grown men in a boat, frozen with fear because they cannot swim away in a lake that's in that condition. And because none of the gospels report anyone passing out, they just screamed in place, vocal but petrified. Do you guys remember, some of you remember my boxer, Amos, that we had years ago? Yeah, he was big, he was extremely muscular, slobbery, extremely friendly. And if you didn't know him, he could be intimidating, okay, intimidating. People confused him for a pit bull, even though he didn't look anything like a pit bull. Well, one day, this woman was jogging down our street. And before I could intervene, Amos went out to give her a proper greeting And when she saw 80 pounds of just muscle jowls and tons of energy bolting her direction, this is what she did. She stopped, she closed her eyes, she ran in place and screamed. It was amazing. And so that just excited Amos more because he thought that she was responding to his greeting. And so Amos, he could jump level with my face. So he's doing that to her. So he's jumping eye level to this poor woman as she's screaming. She can't see him because her eyes are closed. She was essentially petrified. She was frozen and running in place, okay? And once I got Amos to come back to me, this woman was sending a number of emotions and expressions my way, none of which are among the fruit of the spirit. But you see, instead of fighting or fleeing or passing out, she just froze and uh, I apologized and she went down the road hyperventilating and I never saw her again. And for all I know, she could be sitting in the church today. So if, you, if that happens to be you, I am very sorry. Yeah. So the boys are just, they're froze in this boat and they're screaming. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, uh, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Don't worry, be happy. Okay? Uh, that's basically what I said to the jogging lady and it didn't help. And Peter answered him and said, "Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water." Now, I do not recommend Peter's method as any kind of standard test. I don't. I really don't. Uh, I don't recommend much of anything Peter did as a standard test. Okay? What if this was an evil phantom who was seeking Peter's demise? You know, demonic forces are not knowing, known for being honest. And when we see demons in Scripture, they're always trying to harm people, okay? So, yeah. And I don't understand how inviting Peter out on the water would prove that it was Jesus. So real quick, if you find yourself in a situation where you believe a spirit is speaking to you, uh, there are better ways to identify them than putting yourself in harm's way. Here are some biblical ways of testing a spirit. John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 13, we've been there, we've discussed that in the context of false teachers. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, also Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, If one of us or an angel comes to you with any other gospel than the one that we have presented to you. He says, let them be anathema, accursed. So there's some prescribed measures in Scripture for testing spirits and false prophets. Um, you know, you look back in history uh, of many of the, um, the leaders of various cults, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, uh, they should have familiarized themselves better with Scripture before they listened to the spirits or angels that communicated with them. And uh, we need to be careful Uh, I think especially as we are uh, accelerating toward the expiration date of this particular age when Paul and Jesus said there will be the arrival of false teachers, false prophets. Um, He says there were false teachers, false prophets among the people back then and there will be ones coming on the horizon. So we need to acquaint ourselves well with the scriptures so that we know how to engage and navigate and identify uh, all the garbage that is out there. Okay? So with all of that said, don't follow Peter's example, okay? Uh, We see many of his examples in Scripture, but we're never instructed to follow suit. You understand? Uh, Not everything that we see described in Scripture is prescribed for us. We have to be careful. Everything found in Scripture is not intended for us to repeat. For example, Peter tried to keep Jesus from the cross even though his father had appointed it for him. Uh, Jesus had recently told all of the apostles, my father has told me to basically go to Jerusalem, be arrested, be put on trial, crucified, rise again, ascend, come back, and take over the world. And so what does Peter do when they come and arrest Jesus in the garden? He pulls out his sword and he cuts Malchus's ear off. Okay? Uh, there are things done in Scripture even by good people that we should not uh, repeat ourselves. The general rule that I live by is this. If we do not see Jesus and the apostles both practicing something and teaching it, we should avoid it. But if we find Jesus and the apostles both doing something and teaching it, we should follow and obey. Okay, now there are exceptions, but the scriptures taken in their context, I believe, will always clear that up. You get it? So anyway, uh, impulsive Peter takes this course of action, I think, before thinking it through, and uh, thankfully, for his sake, it actually was Jesus that was talking to him. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, while we, we have to be cautious about Peter, amen? Please agree with me. Okay. Um, <laughs> this, I believe, is where we have to speak well of him. I think this is where he shines. This fisherman who knows exactly how dangerous the Galilee is in the midst of this windstorm, turbulent waters. He actually lifts his leg over the side of the boat and climbs out onto the water and then walks on the surface toward Jesus. He must have thought in his mind, if we can track the thoughts of Peter, that if this really is Jesus, I could probably get out and walk on that water. That's commendable. And so he did. I think, what a man. In spite of his want of discernment, he alone had the courage to step out of the boat. Now, most people, they spend their whole life sitting in the boat where it has the appearance only of safety. But they're often just frozen in fear, which in many ways is the opposite of faith. You understand? Most people in the world, I believe that God is called, and I mean called many people into a variety of ministries that appear to be risky. But for a lack of faith, because they do not trust the Lord enough, they stay put where they think it is safe. They don't go on the mission field because they wussed out after God called them. They won't hang their reputation on the line for Christ because they don't really believe that that Christ will provide for them. They don't share the faith because they don't believe the Holy Spirit will give them the words. Too many people back away from a venture of faith simply because of fear. And, but the thing is, when we look at the scriptures from, from Genesis all the way through, we, we see that if God has called you, he will sustain you. As Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, that where God guides, he provides. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be safe. But you know, as, as I tell my wife, as we raise boys who do All the stuff that I love to do, okay, I have to tell her if there's no risk for boys, there's just no fun. Well, I believe that's the same in stepping out in a venture of faith when Christ calls you. It's actually the risk that thrills me. Please, every man in the room, please raise your hand. There's something about the risk that drives you. You know, why do men become firemen? Why do women have children in the first place? Better yet, why do they marry us? There's serious risk involved. If we can get married, if we can have babies, we can trust the Lord with a little risk. Amen? I'm, I I, don't know. I, maybe the generations are just changing so much, but risk, I think, is an amazing force that can drive us. But when we have the call of Christ, we have an eternal safety net. We really do. You know, one of us could perish on the way home from church today from a thousand different things. Missionaries die on the field and they die here at home. Christians suffer their loss, the loss of their reputation here, and they suffer the loss of their reputation on the field. So what? You know, trusting God and obeying Him is never foolish. It is often dangerous, but it is the best thing every time, and it's always worth it. I've never met anybody that obeyed the Lord and toward the end of their life say, you know, I really regret just obeying the call, of following through with what He said. Yeah. The only thing Peter regretted that morning on the lake was his lack of faith, which kept him from dancing on the water that day. And we know that deep down in the hearts of all of those other men, they wished that they had had the faith that you did. That's what I believe. I would rather regret not doing more than not doing anything at all. How about you guys? But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink he cried out saying lord save me so of course he you know rather than looking at faith in faith to the one who called him on the water he reacted in fear to what was happening around him and i think we all are susceptible to that right we look at circumstances we look at what's happening over here we're listening to people's comments whatever and rather than just keeping our focus on christ we get distracted by those things and they cause us to stumble, they, it instills unbelief in us. We should just, and it's easy to say, we should just do what Jesus commands us instead of concerning ourselves with everything that's out there. Uh, I wish we could all be more like Jesus, who only concerned himself with what his father commanded him and only caring what his father thought about him. When we look at the Gospels, you know, he didn't get caught up in what people wanted him to do, like become king. He didn't care about uh, compliments or criticism that he received from people. Uh, the scripture says he did all those things that pleased his father. That, of course, is the ideal, and we should be striving for it. And Peter, of course, misses the mark like so many of us. We, we look in fear to the things around us rather than just trusting Christ. But he still called out to Jesus to save him, so not all was lost. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand And caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, when you look at the verse before, it says that, and beginning to sink, beginning to sink. Nobody just begins to sink in water, right? So something is going on here. It must have happened. uh, It was happening maybe uh, somewhat slowly because when someone normally starts to sink in the water, they're suddenly where they're under the water, right? Gravity does its job. Uh, If we suspended you on the surface of the water somehow and then let go of you, um, there would be no time from the moment that we let go of you and you realize that you were sinking to cry out to Jesus and then have him take hold of you, okay? In my sanctified imagination, I suppose that Peter slowly began to sink in proportion to his faith. But before he sank out of sight, Jesus took hold of him, okay? And then, as soon as Jesus saved Peter from going for a swim, he gave him, which I think is a gentle rebuke, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, I, I mean, I think Jesus is amazing just because he's gentle with us. But I think the statement is, is amazing. You know, Peter had initially exercised enough faith to obey Jesus' call to, to come out on the water. The, the implication is that he didn't exercise great faith to actually walk on the water in the first place. It was just enough faith. You know what I'm saying? It was just enough faith. So here's my stance on all this. I would rather have been rebuked by Jesus than be sitting in the boat with the others and have him say nothing to me. At least Peter got rebuked. He got rebuked for little faith. They got the silent treatment for having zero faith, okay? I envy them, or I envy Peter more than I envy them. I think that every man in that boat, they admired Peter. And you see, eventually someone has to get out of the boat to demonstrate that it is possible to trust and obey Jesus in impossible things. Someone has to get out of the boat to inspire others. Have you guys noticed that that faith really is contagious? That it really is inspiring? Yeah, let me give you an example of one that I think is just so powerful in the Scriptures. So when Paul was in prison, Uh, He wrote uh, to the church in Philippi, and he wrote this, because they were extremely worried about him. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Philippians 1, 12 through 14. So because of Paul's example of faith in the midst of being imprisoned, it caused the local believers to not hide in fear, but to go out into public in faith and preach the gospel. It was kind of like, well, if Paul can go to prison and be like that, then so can I. If Paul can do it, I can do it. So his faith inspired others not to be afraid. So, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to... Well, have you, have you ever kicked yourself for being afraid? How many of you guys have cliff-dived? Or maybe you haven't, but you watched everybody else enjoy themselves do it. And something in you just we wanted to do it, but you never did it. And then you went home. And then you kicked yourself for not jumping off the cliff. How many of you guys have had that? Be honest, how many of you have had that happen? Thank you. Don't let it happen again, okay? Just jump. It's only... Enough thrill seekers in here, but somebody's got to jump, right? Somebody's got to prime this pump and get it going, and then we can just all jump together. Yeah, I, I want to. I want what I do to inspire others to be bold and believing. I, I don't want to be a hero, but I want people, honestly, to see what I do and say, "Look, if Ben can do it, I can do it." Honestly, I pray that when I get up here and 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 bumble all over the text of God's Word, that somebody in the audience will say, I can at least do that. And then they'll go do it. Okay, I want people to be inspired. And I hope that Peter, that day, was kind of a passive rebuke to everyone else. But we know that, of course, the apostles later, they just, they jumped. They all jumped. They were fearless. The miracles aren't over. And when they, that's Peter and Jesus, got into the boat, the wind ceased. And all the disciples were thinking, why didn't you come seven hours ago? <laughs> and the wind didn't subside. It didn't slow down. It just stopped the very moment that Jesus got into that boat. He didn't want to get seasick, you see. So he stopped the weather. Jesus tramples on the sea and then he tames it. It's so crazy. Now the last time that this happened, he actually rebuked the wind of the waves and it stopped. This time... He just gets in the boat. He doesn't have to say anything. He just commands it with his will. Just another day in the life of Jesus. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The boys are really starting to get it, aren't they? It's coming together. Now, again, the last time they were in the storm with Jesus on the lake, uh, they were all afraid. And uh, so they went and they woke Jesus up and they basically said, don't you care that we're all going to die? And Jesus, he got up and he rebuked them for unbelief. But then he calmed the sea and they responded and they said, what sort of a man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What kind of a man? What category of man do we place him? But this time the disciples came closer to Jesus and the, the word they're worshiped is they prostrated themselves on the bottom of the boat and they declared truly, you are the son of God. That's progress, isn't it? What kind of a man are you to you are the son of God? You know, how could anyone remain you know, on their feet once they realized who they were standing in the boat with. You know, what kind of emotions were running through them fear, you know, excitement, wonder. Yeah, certainly, these men are growing in their faith. And just consider the last 12 hours, they've been pretty amazing. You know, the feeding of the masses, Jesus walking on the water, Peter walking on the water, Jesus calming the storm. And now, this realization that he's not just some sort of man but he's the God-man. He's the son of God. He's, as the te- as son of God really means, he's made of the same stuff that God is made of. What could possibly happen next? <laughs> Let's finish the chapter. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. So the land of Gennesaret, uh, properly known in the Hebrew as Kinnereth, it was a, a fertile plain just south and west of Capernaum and it ran in a crescent along the, uh, the Galilee for about three or so miles. Uh, at that time, uh, Josephus said that it was just extremely fertile, producing walnuts and palms, figs, olives, grapes. That would have been quite the farm. At the time of Christ, uh, Capernaum and uh, Magdala uh, were actually, well, Magdala was actually in the plain. They, those were the cities that made uh, the most use of it. What is important about Magdala, that's where Mary was from, Uh, her last name wasn't Magdalene or Magdalena, Uh, she was Mary of Magdala, that's what that means, okay, and by this time she was actually a follower of Jesus, they were near, very near her home. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now, seeing that the place was, was not far from Capernaum, where Jesus had actually done most of his ministry, uh, the men there who, who traveled back and forth, okay, doing their trade and all of that, they recognized him. And then just as we would, they got word out to everyone okay, that Jesus was in the area and that everybody should bring their sick down to him. What an amazing reputation Jesus had. If you, if you can make it to Jesus, or as the centurion learned, even if you don't, Jesus will heal you. He will heal you. And, and then they begged Jesus that they might touch the hem of his garment for healing. Why do you think they bring that up? It's very interesting. Well, you remember when Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, that in that crowd, that woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, she had thought to herself, if I could only touch the hem of his garment, I would be made well. And then, of course, Jesus made that whole incident very public, okay? Well, someone from Genesaret may have been present in the crowd and then had only witnessed that particular thing happen, And then went back to his community, told his friends and his family that the woman, all she did, guys, was she touched the hem of his garment and she was completely healed. That report may have had such a strong impression on the local people that they thought that Jesus' clothing was somehow the means by which he healed people. And so they were eager just to touch his clothes. Now, it was certainly a superstitious idea, wasn't it? It really was, but it was one that Jesus honored, as we see, and I believe that he honored it simply because he loved people and he wanted to minister to their needs. Okay, Jesus, he was interested in their faith, even if their faith at that time wasn't perfect. Do we all understand that faith matures? It does. Jesus understood that faith matures, that it often you know, begins in what we could call a state of infancy, and it has all kinds of silly ideas and attachments. But as time goes on, faith becomes informed until it reaches greater maturity. Now, when it came to a faith that saves, which this was not, it is necessary that one believes on Christ alone as the source of the redemption. But I believe that as as we go through the life of Jesus, his intention was to bring The faith of people from one place to another place in progress toward recognizing him as the true object of faith. And so, uh, he would heal people to inspire faith in them, miracles and teaching. This here was a miracle of compassion. And Jesus, as uh, it says in other places in the Gospels, this was intended to authenticate his identity to his audience. It wasn't saving faith that healed them physically, okay? But Jesus was trying to inspire that kind of faith in the people. And I think there's a good lesson in this for us as we work with those who are perhaps curious about Christianity. They're possibly you know, investigating the claims of Christ and the veracity of the Bible. I think that we should be patient with these people and just help them along and see what kind of faith matures until true faith is born and they're born again in Christ. Amen. I believe that's what it is to, to disciple people to Christ. It's just helping their faith along. We should be patient. Uh, even in the instruction to, to pastors, um, you know, pastors struggle with uh, what many have called evangelical frustration. Paul headed that off in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 and said, you know, uh, be ready in season and out of season. You know, preach the word, exhort and instruct with all patience patience especially cuz people are so patient with their pastors amen yeah yeah I'm trying to ignore gabe how many of you guys have ministered to you know people that are kind of on their way to Christ or they're recently in Christ and you're kind of shocked by some of the things they say or believe because it's just it's just extra biblical you know it is not within the confines of orthodoxy but also uh, a lot of times you notice that what they say is not in the category of essential theology. I think it can be detrimental to those people when we come down on them for their heresy, when it's just not an important issue. Okay? Uh, we want their uh, orthodoxy to be accurate, and we want that orthodoxy to be expanding and growing. But when they say goofy things, they say silly things, um, that may be a time where you need to address it. But most of the time, I think, hey, Jesus will probably reel that in over time. Okay? As they read the word, as they spend time with a community of faith, a good community of faith, that they'll just grow out of that and they'll realize it. And they would probably or appreciate that you never mentioned it at all when they realize how crazy it is. And So just being patient with those people. If Jesus, the greatest theologian in the world, could overlook some silly superstition about his clothes in order to be healed, I think uh, we could be a little more gracious as people are growing, maturing in their faith and their understanding, amen. We'll go ahead and stand up. We'll pray um, again from the text. You guys, I don't, I've never met anybody that has said, what I want is to live a life of regrets. What I want is to watch everybody do amazing things by faith while I just watch. We, I, of course, I love to watch people do amazing things. Uh, but I want to go do amazing things out of faith. Um, you know, growing up in Wyoming uh, on the southern border, there, right by the Wasatch Front in Utah, greatest snow in the world. I had some 20 ski resorts. Uh, what we would do all week is we would watch extreme skiing videos to prep us for the weekend, and then we would just go crazy on the mountain. Okay. So why don't you make it a habit in your own time, and in the family devotions, read missionary stories to your children. Read the stories of of great preachers in the past to help inspire them to do great things by faith, okay? And if you don't know uh, great missionaries from the past, uh, come to me and I'll give you a list, okay? And uh, be inspired, be inspired. Let's pray. Father, um, I I think it's due time that the vast majority of, of the evangelical community, go on a venture of faith. Do by your grace things that for us, by ourselves, would be impossible. Lord, that we would hear the call, we would trust you, and we'd get out of the boat. And Lord, that when troubling things come our way, that like Peter, we would cry out to you, and that we would receive your gentle rebuke, and then we would do it again. And Lord, I pray that as people in our own fellowship, in our community, step out and are bold, sacrificial, uh, Lord, that that would inspire the next person. And that flame would just spread among us. So Lord, help us to be believing and help us to be faithful. Help us to encourage one another. Lord, help us to be bold. Lord, thank you for your example. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you will always be with us and never forsake us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.